and welcome back to the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the show where I talk to developers, programmers, and coders of all types who are in business for themselves, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are. So if you're a coder who wants to get into business, or maybe if you're already in business and you just want to see where to go next, then hopefully this show is of value to you. This is episode 17 with Greg Shire. One quick announcement before we get started today. I've just embarked on a new project with my friend and collaborator Otto Kukic to build a platform to make it easier for event speakers to find and apply to tech events. We're calling it speak.dev and you can find information about it at the web address speak.dev. So what's the deal with this project? Well, one thing that I love doing in the tech industry is to speak at different events. So whether that's conferences or meetups, I love to travel, get on stage, and ultimately meet and connect with new people in the industry. But finding events to apply to hasn't always been the easiest. I speak at about a dozen events per year, and I often find myself scouring about five or six different resources to get info on events. Then I need to make sure I apply to them before the deadline. I need to make sure that I don't double book myself. And this has always been kind of a pain and is something about the process that I haven't enjoyed a whole lot. It turns out that Otto has had the same pain when it comes to applying to conferences and meetups as well. Otto is a seasoned event speaker and he actually does that for his job. He works in developer relations. So he's going to conferences and meetups all the time and he has to go through the exact same stuff, except for him, it is a lot worse because he's doing a lot more of it. He and I have talked to a lot of people in the industry who have the same kind of pain. And so that's why we decided to do something about it. And that's why we are building speak.dev. The ultimate goal is to help event speakers find and manage their events better and just generally make it easier and more enjoyable for them to do more speaking. Now, the cool part about this project is that we're doing pretty much everything out in the open. So that means we're live streaming almost everything we do from planning and organizing to actually writing the code and everything in between. So if you'd like to follow along with us and you'd like to get notified about when we go live, head over to speak.dev and sign up for our mailing list. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is speak.dev, so all spelled out, D-O-T, dev. And we've also got the same handle on Twitch, which is where we'll be live streaming. We'd love it if you followed along with us and we hope to see you there. My guest today is Greg Shire. Greg is a developer, product creator, and entrepreneur from Montreal, Canada. He built Insomnia, a cross-platform and open-source tool for debugging REST and GraphQL APIs that is loved by developers around the world. When not building beautiful products, Greg can be found cooking tasty dishes, going for a run, or eating a burrito. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. I am very excited to talk to you. Uh, Insomnia is uh, one of my favorite developer-focused products. I've used it as my REST and GraphQL API client of choice for the last few years. Um, so you've you've built a beautiful thing with Insomnia. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, maybe give us the background uh, around the products and tell us how you got started with it. Sure, yeah. So it all started about five years ago. I was at the previous job that I was working at as a developer. And we were building a, a, an API for companies to send transactional emails. So like while we were building this, we had to constantly be interacting with the API um, to test and debug it. We also used it for our customers. So like we would have to send our customers like code snippets 
in order for them to like help get onboarded or fix problems. Um, so we used a, a curl, curl for that, which is a command line utility, but it's really difficult to use. Like if you're not a super, um, like a super developer, like it's, it's painful. There's a lot of parameters and arguments to remember. And a lot of our customers weren't super technical. So like we could send them snippets, but if you tell them, okay, I'll just open up your terminal and run this thing, they might be like, uh, okay, what is the terminal? <laughs> um, so uh, we, we did that for a little while, but it like started to break down a bit. So I built a tool to replace that workflow. Um, like you said, it's called Insomnia. It's a desktop application and you can basically use it to set up and execute HTTP requests and responses, um, including GraphQL. So not only can you do that, but you can also do more advanced things like um, it can help you set up OAuth, like set up and manage OAuth tokens. Um, it can generate code snippets for all your requests and a bunch of other cool stuff like that. So really its goal is to make using APIs more like human friendly because they're typically not meant for humans to use. Right, right. Yeah, uh, it's it's a beautiful product for that. I, I've uh, used uh, pretty much all of those features of it, and it's it's come in handy so many times, saved me a bunch of time. I know it's probably saved a lot of uh, time for the listeners. When you were building this product, uh, I think you're, you were probably familiar with one of, I don't know if you would consider it a competitor, but Postman is you know this REST client that has been known by developers for a long time. How did you think about uh, building a product that did sort of the same things as something that was already on the market? Did you worry about competition or were you not even paying attention at all to Postman? How did you think about that? Right, so yeah, that was actually a big reason why I created the app in the first place. So I mentioned we were using Curl. Um, Curl workflow fell apart and I started, like the first thing I did was look for alternative tools. So there was Postman, which is like, about three or four years older than Insomnia. And there's also one called PAW, which is a Mac only one, which looked really awesome, but I was on Linux at the time, so I, it wouldn't work. Um, and Postman I found to be a little bit overly complex and complicated. Like it does a lot more than just traditional um, like HTTP requests. It has like mocking and a bunch of other stuff. So you open it up and the first user experience presents you with like a lot of buttons, a lot of options, and it's kind of hard to dig through all that and navigate it. So like for us at the job I was at, all we needed was an app that sent JSON to an API and got JSON back. So that's what I built initially. And um, I launched it, it was actually a Chrome web store application at the start. And I just launched it up there so our, our customers could download it and our team, like my team members could also download it and get updates. Um, but I think people really liked the simplicity and the focus on user experience which is something, in my opinion, that Postman doesn't really focus on. They focus more on having everything under the kitchen sink. Right. So um, so that was that was essentially the reason why I started it. And there, like, as for competition, um, we can get a little bit more into that once I talk about, like, quitting my job to work on it. But, sure. yeah, that's why I created it initially. Cool. That's, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me that you want to focus on simplicity. I found that to be the case with Postman as well, that it seemed a little bit like you were, you were bombarded with options when you would first start to use it. And I remember distinctly the first time that I fired up Insomnia thinking like, I think my first thought was, this seems really nice because it's not, I'm not 
you know, being bombarded like I am in Postman, maybe a little bit concerned that I might not be able to do as much as I want, but, you know, sure enough, I was able to find all the features that I needed. Um, but thinking that, like, there was almost like a breath of fresh air in getting an interface that is clean, is simple, is, you know, really just kind of intuitive to use. So hats off to you on, on making that decision to uh, to be simplistic uh, in, in your choices there. Um, I'd love to talk about some more products that you've done. I think you've got a little bit of a history uh, of product uh, design developments and, and release under your belt, but maybe let's let's talk a little bit more about Postman uh, before we get there. Um, you've recently gone through an acquisition. Uh, maybe we can bounce around a bit. We can talk about you know the story of you quitting your job and everything, but uh, talk to me about this acquisition because this is uh, something that, that happened very recently, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so about, uh, well, I, should, I guess I should rewind to back when I was at my last job. Um, so I actually launched, so I launched Insomnia and a couple months later, I, a founder of, the founder of Mashape reached out to me. Mashape was like an API marketplace. Um, but yeah, so the founder reached out to me and offered to sponsor the project. I guess they wanted to just support open source or not open source, but uh, developer tools, tools around using APIs. So that was that went on for about a couple of years they were just sending money my way every month and then when i finally got to the point where i was able to quit my job to focus on it full time i i reached back out to him and said like sorry i'm i'm gonna start a business out of this i don't need your sponsorship anymore so like that was sort of the end of it but then six months ago he reached out again um now the founder of kong um which there's, there was a bit of a transition between Mashape and Kong. Kong is now a new product, but he reached out again under Kong and offered to basically just to talk and discuss a potential partnership. So that's where the, the idea of the acquisition came about. And that was about three years after I'd quit my job okay. before um, the acquisition. Gotcha, okay. So uh, in terms of like, you know, I, I suppose acquisitions have different ways of going, being, you know, really tense in the negotiating stages and, you know, maybe falling apart. Was it pretty simple in this regard because you had that history with the acquirer or was it still like where you kind of kept up at night thinking about terms and all that? Um, it was. So terms, I actually didn't realize, like a lot of people probably don't, how complicated an acquisition is. So I wasn't really thinking about like the terms and the complexity at first. I was just thinking about like, do I want to actually give up this thing that I've been working on, mm. which I really love? Um, so that took a long time. And so my initial response was no, like I'm fine. Like I have my own thing going, it's really good. Right. Um, it's, it's growing pretty well. Um, so I was sort of at that point trying to decide between should I sell or no, should I not sell? Not like, oh, what's the good, what's a good value? What, right. what am I, what should I aim for? Um, so I think we sat on it a couple of weeks and the founder reached out again and basically offered to like fly me down to their offices for a couple of weeks to like see what the environment was like, uh, work with the employees there, basically doing what I was doing here, but in their office so I could have more of a, a sense of what the company was like. Right. So I did that and like I, to my surprise, I really loved it. Like I... I really liked the people there and the culture was really positive and like everyone, there's a lot of smart people there. It's growing really fast. So I got a sense of that excitement and that's sort of when my answer changed from, okay, I could picture this 
company, like a company that I would, I would like to work for, um, can I come up with a number that would make me happy hmm. um, to sort of like, um, I don't want to say use it as a stepping stone, but I guess like I'd been doing insomnia for a few years and I'd been getting pretty burnt out on it. I wasn't really working on it too actively anymore. So if I could sort of have this exit and use it to um, gain experience in this new larger company that's growing really quickly and then sort of propel myself into the next stage afterwards, um, that seemed like a pretty good idea. So I came up with a number for what I thought it was worth and ended up getting like pretty close to that. Nice. So that's, that's how it went down. And then like lawyers and accountants for like the next three months. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be quite the process. I mean, I've never gone through anything like that, but you know, seeing little insights of that from exposure to various companies that I've been parts of, it, it looks like a maybe not the most pleasant side of, of business, right? Having to wade through all of the legalities of everything. And you know, I'm yeah. sure there's a bit and of stress that comes with that. Yeah, and being in Canada made it a little bit more complicated. So okay. Kong is Kong is in San Francisco. They're a California company, right? Um, so like dealing with another country, like my company is Canadian. Yeah, I had to deal with all these taxes, and I live in Quebec inside of Canada yeah. as well. So that's like a whole other set of issues because they right. they got to be different. They got to be different. As a fellow Canadian, I'm well aware of those differences. I actually my 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 wife and I and our our children live in. Ottawa, but we got married years ago on the Quebec side because we wanted to select a, you know, a nicer venue that was more affordable over there. Um, but looking back on it, it was like a whole slew of all sorts of legal hurdles that we had to jump through just to get our marriage license from like five minutes across the border to be, you know, to valid where we lived and everything like that. Oh, wow. I digress. But uh, the legalities uh, around all that are, are certainly plentiful. One thing I've thought about, and maybe you've got some thoughts on this too is if I were to do a product company, um, you know, serving, I guess, the world, essentially, because anyone could could use it, so a, a digital product company, I might try to, to actually incorporate it in the US from the outset in case one day an acquisition scenario came to light. Do you think you would do something similar, maybe with like Stripe Atlas or something like that for another product? Um, I think, like, I don't know the details of what that would entail. Um, I assume it would be more complicated to start and to manage all those things, especially if you want to, if you want to start hiring people, then hmm. I can imagine it gets really complicated. Um, so for me, uh, with Insomnia, I started a, in Canada, it's called a sole proprietorship. I'm right. not sure if the US has the same name for that, but so I basically started under my name, like my, it was me personally with an alias, um, the company's floating keyboard software. <laughs> um, and then once it started growing, um, well, the first thing about sole proprietorships, it's very easy to get one up and running. You basically just have to fill out a form and pay $70. Right, right. And then you have one and you can start working under it and you don't have to pay any um, like sales tax until you reach $30,000 30 right. a quarter, a quarter, I think, of income. I think it's a year, so, isn't it? Is it a year? I think yeah, year. maybe it's a year. Um, so for starting things, that's a really good option because it's very low friction and you can just start right away without mm -hmm. too much overhead. Um, so I don't know, like once you get to the point where you need to incorporate, it's probably still a lot easier to do it in Canada, but yeah, I haven't looked into the doing it in the States. If you, if you think an acquisition might be something in your future and maybe you're actually planning for it, then probably, but, um, I feel like 
Well, when I started Insomnia, I wasn't planning on it. So. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's um, um, I didn't even consider that. Okay. Well, that that's probably something that would be worthwhile talking about is maybe uh, circling back. So we talked a bit about the acquisition, um, which congratulations. By the way, that's uh, it's very exciting. Um, maybe we could talk about earlier on uh, with a product, maybe what you were thinking of doing and take us maybe from there to the step where you, you said, okay, this is doing enough revenue now where I can actually quit my job. Uh, and maybe what your motivations there were. Right, sure. Um, so I would say it was probably almost two years after launching it initially that I quit my job. And so I mentioned it was on the Chrome web store at first and that enabled it to get, it to get a lot of organic traffic and a lot of organic installs. Um, I think a lot of them came from like people would go to the Chrome store to download Postman and they would have these recommendations under the listing and Insomnia would often appear under that. So everyone that downloaded Postman automatically sort of got exposed to Insomnia mm. just because the virality of the Chrome store. So I guess I think it was about two years after it had about, I would say, 5,000, three to 5,000 active users. And I was at that I'd been on that job for three years at that time. So I was sort of looking to try something new anyways. Um, and with that, like three or 5,000 users and also looking at Postman, like Postman was a successful company. They had, I think like 20 or 30 employees at the time. So in my head, I was like, okay, maybe I can leave to focus on insomnia and try and make money at it. Um, so the formula in my head was, Postman has about 20 or 30 employees. They have about 4 million users or something. If I can get like two to 5% of their market share, then I can be successful on my own. So I already sort of had the confidence that I could build a better tool, at least for myself and the people who are already using it. So I sort of just needed to turn that into a business model and try and push to that like 5% market share that Postman had. So that's, that's, sort of the the thought process that I used to convince myself that it was okay to quit and to be confident that I could um, like make something out of it and make an income. But I think at, at the time, my goal for an income was $3,000 a month. Okay. If I could make $3,000 a month, then I could, like that would be success for me. And I think I hit that about a year and a half in, okay. maybe it around that point. And then when the acquisition was finalized, it had just passed 20,000 a month. Wow. That's impressive. So in yeah. two years. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And I never thought I would get past like, I think because I had an indie, ha indie hackers interview and I'm pretty sure I said in there that if I could get $5,000 a month, that would be awesome. And I think I said one day I hope to achieve $10,000 a month, but I don't think I can like, I think that'll be a, right. a big gamble. Well, it's so interesting <laughs> because there's, I do this too, I think, in my mind. Like, I set up sort of what amount to, I think, artificial hurdles uh, for myself, um, or at least, you know, artificial sort of, um, artificial kind of uh, points at which I think that's the max that I can do, that, you know, I can't imagine myself ever doing anything more. And so, like, for me, I don't have a product myself, but I do a lot of consulting, and so, it used to be uh, like an annual salary, right? And then I would like set some kind of artificial upper limit for myself where I said, that's probably the max that I can ever do. And then once breaking through that, you say, okay, well, maybe I can do a bit more. But there's always like these steps that we tend to climb. And I think that's natural for most people. Um, 
did you ever, I'm curious, did you ever like uh, have any sort of worries along the way as you were growing? Like, you know, one thing for people that are getting into product development or wanting to go out on their own is they're thinking, what happens if I get to a spot one day where the money just stops coming in? Was that ever a concern for you as you were building up your revenue streams? Um, I think there's always like a general like air of nervousness towards revenue. Like when I started, I did my best to limit that. So I had, I think I had about a year and a half of like savings um, when I quit. So I had, I knew I had a year and a half of runway where if I made no revenue at all, I, I could last at least that long. So for the first year, I basically, I, because I had that safety net, I didn't worry too much. Obviously there's like the fear of failure and stuff that you have to worry about, but um, in general, the revenue thing wasn't too bad. And I think I made, I was able to make the first dollar fairly quickly. Like when I quit my job, I rewrote the app as a, an Electron app. So it wasn't in the Chrome store anymore. And immediately after that, I added a, a paid tier. So the app was free and the paid tier allowed um, members to basically sync their data to the cloud so that they could work across multiple machines and with multiple team members. So I think the, the momentum started building pretty quickly. Um, where it became a little bit stressful was um, like dealing with growth. Like growth always feels slower than it is at the time until you look back at it and you're like, well, that was actually pretty good. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, like the revenue wasn't too bad. Um, there were a few moments that um, I did worry about. So about a year after quitting, I decided to open source the application. Um, it's like, because it's a REST client or an HTTP client, there's a lot of different edge cases and complexities that like one person basically can't know all the things. Like I, I didn't know what OAuth 2 was or OAuth 1. Um, bunch of others like edge cases and stuff to do with DNS and HTTP and all these things. Um, so like I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't build a successful application that was robust enough for everybody on my own. So I wanted to open source it with the hopes of the community being able to fill in some of those gaps. And that, that was really scary because like putting your thing out there that you've worked like a year on is pretty stressful. Like what if people judge it? Um, what if people steal it? Like all these tangential worries that um, you sort of have to overcome just to like put it out there. Um, so it took a, f a few months of like trying to make that decision before it happened. But like that turned out to be a, probably the most valuable decision that I made during the, during the whole process. Hmm. Interesting. So was it, I mean, at that point, what was your thought around like revenue and potential for revenue growth? I guess what what was the revenue stream after it went open source? Like, was it a, a a professional version? Was it something hosted? What were you offering that was paid? Yeah, I think so. It was that team collaboration and cloud sync. Okay. Um, I think that had. I I don't remember the timeline that well, but I'm pretty sure I had re released that already for maybe six months before open sourcing it. So I had a bit of a revenue stream coming in. There was a lot of users using it, um, probably in the tens of thousands. Okay. And so I knew that if I launched it, a lot of people would see it and right. a lot of people would hopefully start contributing. Um, and then like ideally, um, that would sort of fund the open source project. 
and I don't want to get into too much about like open source and making money, but yeah. I personally feel like the only way to do it successfully is if you can turn it into a business model. Yeah, I agree um, with you so, for sure. So I, I had the business model in place already. So like open source would hopefully act as a catalyst to that and just help it grow even faster. Yeah. I just, uh, as, as you mentioned before we started recording, I just had uh, Kitze on the show and uh, his his article title was GitHub stars don't pay the rent, which uh, I think is, is very true. I mean, there's a lot of people I think they would like to make open source the kind of sustainable, you know, money generating thing that, you know, they want it to be. But the culture, I think, around it just doesn't lend itself towards that. So, I mean, very smart uh, decision uh, that I think you made. Um, I'd love to talk about the the idea of transparency around the growth of insomnia. Um, some, this is something that, you know, I've seen people do this ever since I got into sort of this like space that we're in, if you want to call it that, where people are building products and putting out information about them uh, in terms of their growth. I've seen people do things like what, uh, what you were formerly doing, which is putting the, the metrics on, uh, on bare metrics, open startups. Um, and so that would show things like how much revenue is being generated, how customer acquisition is going, all sorts of things uh, like that. And so this is something I I appreciate when companies do this, but some people wonder why companies do this. Um, did you have any particular motivations around that when you decided to give that a go? Yeah, so my main motivation was, like I was starting this thing and I already mentioned like reducing the risk of starting my own thing by like evaluating the market. Like I knew I had to achieve some sort of percentage of Postman's user base um, I had money saved up. The other thing that I would have really liked to know is how long does it usually take to like go from zero to sustainable for one person? Hmm. And there isn't really, or there wasn't really at the time very much of that out there. Like Verimetrics had their open startups, but there was only like five or six companies on there. Um, and they're usually, I think they weren't, were, not many of them were solo, like solo devs either. A lot of them were like larger companies. So. It's hard to use that as a gauge. Yeah. So what what I really wanted was that thing exactly. I, mean, I want this list of companies, um, ideally from like independent developers, that showed um, how long it took to achieve like a sustainable income and like what mistakes were made and how they got there, what things they tried, um, like average monthly growth, all that stuff. And so because it didn't really exist, I decided okay, if it doesn't exist for me, then I'm at least going to give back and do it for my own metrics. So I want to share as much of the process as possible in order to help other people like me who may be starting their own thing um, in the future. Right. So that was the, the crux of it behind the decision. And so at the, in the beginning, I was sharing, I think I had a blog. I was writing blog posts, basically monthly updates. Um, telling what I was doing, what worked, what didn't, and like what my plans were. And then once I started getting income, I was posting like revenue metrics, MRR, um, churn rates and stuff. And then eventually I got onto the bare metrics open startups page. And so I was sharing it there. And then also Indie Hackers, which I mentioned, I had an interview and Insomnia's, pro the Insomnia product was on there, which also showed revenue. Um, so I was really just trying to share as much as possible. And a lot of people have actually reached out since then and just said like, hey, thanks for sharing all this. Um, I really enjoyed the blog posts. 
Um, I don't think they get too much traffic, but the people who do read it really appreciate it. Yep. So I think it it's definitely worth it. Um, but yeah, I would say the main reason was just to give back to people and just try and help out other people who might be in a similar situation. Yeah, I love that angle. Like that's, uh, I mean, that's I think the best reason you could you could do it for. I mean, and hopefully those who are sharing revenue numbers like that all are, are having that similar motivation. Um, I've certainly benefited, I think, in my own work from from seeing the journeys of others who have gone before me uh, and the kinds of, you know, numbers they can get to, let's say, uh, and, and taking some motivation from that. Um, I think, you know, one thing that I've always heard is that people perhaps that are like outside of this realm that we're in might see that and think like, oh, this guy's just posting his large numbers and is just bragging about his his success, um, which, you know, I, I find, I guess, fascinating because it's for me, I've never really looked at it that way when I've seen people talk about their, you know, their numbers and their journey. I've always taken it like, wow, like, you know, this is a solo, solo developer uh, who has some of the same skills that I've got. You know, surely I could probably do something for myself uh, and follow in, the, in that path. Um, so I think that's, that's excellent. Uh, that's an excellent choice to make. And so for those listening, if you've got your own products uh, that you're starting up, perhaps something for you to consider as well uh, as they start to grow and develop. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, can I just say say something about the uh, about? I think you touched on it a little bit, but I think a lot of people do feel like people are posting their metrics in order to get some sort of gain from it. Um, like that, I don't think. So for me, when I was starting out, like I was posting like, "Oh, I made three hundred dollars this month." Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not impressive. That's almost uh, like it almost makes me sad to have to share that. <laughs> <laughs> And then once once I got to the point where I was basically, I think around $5,000 a month where I was like making a reasonable income, I started feeling bad for posting them okay. because it at that point it sort of did feel like bragging a little bit. So if you, if you go back through the blog posts, um, which are on Insomnia's website, you'll actually see the updates getting less and less frequent over time mm -hmm. because I felt like at that point I wasn't really controlling the growth as much as in the beginning. So it was sort of like, okay, I was in maintenance mode kind of, but mm -hmm. it was still growing. Um, I didn't really have anything to say about why it grew. I was just like, okay, now it grew 10% and I didn't do anything. <laughs> like that kind of seems a little bit um, self-indulgent, I guess. Sure. Um, so yeah, I guess that that is like, that's my thought around it. I don't think there is anything to gain from sharing your metrics, um, like definitely traffic wise, like mm -hmm. unless you have like some really impressive metrics like super huge growth or like right. huge spikiness but then at that point you're already successful so it doesn't really matter yeah yeah that's interesting right i wonder about that for i don't know so like i look at some of the companies on bare metrics uh one i use their product is convertkit uh they have you know super impressive numbers uh over a million dollars a month right and I w i've wondered about that whether like their willingness to be open about their numbers in that way might in and of itself sort of start to generate more users like if people are ever like if they're ever you know considering a tool to use and they say hey you know convert kit is growing quickly and you know i have seen their products impressive but it also looks like they're doing well as a company i wonder if that's motivation ever for people to choose a product um i suspect not i mean i don't think people are going to really go down that road as much as they will choose a product based on it, its own merits right um but right. yeah and I, I feel like it's kind of where 
it's like where the information is available as well. Like if they wanted to use it for some sort of credibility, like they would probably post about those things like during the sign up process or put on right. the landing page or not hide like it away more, behind some yeah, landing page. Yeah, so many true. people don't even know that the bare metrics uh, pages exist. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yes, it's helping people, but it's really only helping the people that know about it, which is yeah. a very small percentage. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. That's interesting. I, I definitely, I, I appreciate the, the people who have um, gone, cause you know, it, it, some people I've talked to for them to think about the idea of posting their metrics, it's kind of scary. Like they don't want to give people a, a window into the way that their business is running, like in terms of how much revenue it's generating, et cetera. But uh, for those that have, have gone ahead and done it, I, I appreciate it. So you being one of them, thank you very much for that. That's, uh, it's, it's definitely appreciated. Um, you touched on something a bit earlier. Um, you just mentioned it in passing kind of uh, about a period of burnout. I, I'd love to chat about that if you're willing um, to just get a sense from you of maybe what led to it. And you know, if you were kind of overworking on insomnia, if it were, was maybe any other factors and uh, what that meant, I guess, in terms of your product as it was developing. Right. And I think that probably started way back at the last company I was at. Like it was a fast growing startup. Um, we'd went through Y Combinator. We had about like three or five developers just doing way too much work mm. for each of us. Um, really exciting. Like it wasn't like a bad place to work or anything. Like I learned so much and really appreciate the time there. But like in those types of environments, you typically um, are extremely invested personally in what you're building and you just want to you want to work on it as much as possible. So even at that last job, I was, I sort of got in the habit of overworking and really um, making my work my identity and just like not exploring other hobbies or interests outside of what I was working on. Um, so when I started Insomnia, I sort of adopted the same thing. Like I just went from one thing to the next. Like Insomnia became my life and my identity. Hmm. Um, but that's really risky because once you're in that position, if anything, negative happens to that thing that you associate your identity with um you start to get like all these negative feelings you can like um fall down into depression or um like if you're just overworking in general you have like health issues i had like i developed back problems mm -hmm. i wasn't exercising so it all sort of like went into this downward downward spiral where everything piled on top of me and i think that was about two two years in after I quit my job, I just got to the point where like, I wasn't happy anymore. Hmm. Like I wasn't excited to work on the, the product anymore. Um, so having health issues, I need to start exercising again and find some other interest. So I took like maybe three months off and just like did other things. Yeah. Like <laughs> I actually tried to start recording podcasts. I got into art again. Nice. I started running and exercising. Um, and then, so yeah, it, like, and that didn't really help. Like, no. I really needed to, like, it takes a long time to get back up from that low point. Um, you basically need to like, create a whole new identity for yourself. Right. And I think I have that a little bit more now, but I'm still really working hard to, to get back to that point. Um, which is like, that was actually a big reason why I decided to go with the acquisition mm. because like, working by yourself for three years is is really hard yeah um i often tell people like 
Um, the hardest part of working by yourself is having nobody to celebrate the wins with. <laughs> right. Like nobody, if you're the only one working on it, nobody can relate to you enough to really feel what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's so whether true. that's negative or positive. True. True. Um, so I don't know how to fix that problem in the future if I were to try it again, but um, I'll definitely be more aware of it this time and try and like look for more support yeah. um, in my social circles. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, I think it's super important and, uh, you know, I, timely for many people, I'm sure, who get into a spot where they're feeling burnt out on whatever they're working on, whether it's, you know, their day job, which happens, or side projects that maybe are starting to get more busy, especially open source wise. Um, so I think that's important, you know, take some time away, find some other interests and, uh, you know, of course, seek out other help if it's appropriate. Um, I wonder, like, did you ever think about what it might look like and if it would have been different if you had a co-founder uh, along this journey? Do you think it would have been different in any of the ways, I guess, either the way that it would have grown, taken off and been acquired, or also like the way that you may have gotten burnt out on that? Um, do, do you think that would have looked different? Um, if it were a successful co-founder relationship, yes. Right. Um, I have my hesitations in whether or not I would be willing to like take on that risk of mm. like, um, like I know if a couple people maybe who I would think like being a co-founder might work out with, but like there's really no way to know it until you start. That's true. And like a lot of co-founder relationships don't work out. Like it's, it's almost like a marriage, but um, I guess probably harder in some ways because like you're both dedicated to this business. It's not as um, personal, I guess. Mm. So it's it's really hard to stay committed. Um, so I, I did think of like I do think about it as like if it were to work out, if like I were to find a successful co-founder, then I feel like it would have made a lot of things easier, especially um, with regards to um, sharing the the ups and the downs, but also like distribution of work, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that I didn't do because it was just me. Like I didn't spend too much time focusing on like accounting and um those things because i just didn't have time and i also couldn't really deal with um trying to hire people because i was heads down trying to get stuff done and that would almost be like a different job like trying to find people and onboard them and right. get them ramped up on everything so i think with a co-founder being able to split up those tasks even just like that little bit um, would have helped a lot and it would have allowed me to go in a different direction, I think, hmm. um, because I really didn't want to, I didn't want to manage people. I didn't want to um, do any of the business side of things. I just right. wanted to like write code and ship product. Um, so having somebody else to fill in um, some of those other gaps would have been really useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, I think something that a lot of people have to think about as they're getting started, right, is whether they are the types that would be best suited to do solo work or best suited to have some, you know, support in tandem. I think both come with their sets of challenges and trade-offs that you have to just be aware of. Um, but as I think both you and I have seen around, uh, you know, the community, both both options can work, uh, you know, equally well. Um, so that's that's really interesting. I, I wonder about your approach to this product in terms of like, Built, I think you mentioned this, you, you built it for yourself initially. And, and you know, that's part of your story. That's part of the motivation uh, for why insomnia, why, why I got going. 
How important do you think that is when it comes to building a successful product? Is it crucial that you build something for yourself? Is it enough that you maybe find a pain point that exists somewhere else that maybe you don't have that specific pain, but you can sense that others do? Um, and given your, you've got a bit of a backlog of products that you've done, how important is that piece of building it for yourself? Uh, well, I would say probably the real question is whether or not you'll be using what you build, whether you're building it for yourself or not. Um, I feel like dog fooding is really important. And if you're building it for yourself, obviously like dog fooding is built into the process. Like you build it for yourself and you're the main user. Um, you can spot all the, the downsides and room for improvement. But if you're not building it specifically for yourself, you still have to find some sort of way to be like a user of it. Um, whether that's um, like finding like a, I mean, ideally it's a real use case, but maybe even forcing your way through a fake use case, mm -hmm. um, just forcing your, your way um, into using the product. Um, so I think it can be done if you're not building it for yourself, but I think you still need that core component of you have to be using it in some fashion. You have to be testing what you're building. You have to um, see where it falls down and uh, the pain points it causes. And also one really important thing is to, if you're not building it for yourself, um, be sure to talk to customers as much as possible and see them using it. Um, ideally you do that when you're building it for yourself already as well, but um, yeah. Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought on that one. <laughs> it's all good. I, I, you know, those are some great points. I think um, you can't really build something in a vacuum and hope that others will just you know, adopt exactly what you've built, I think is, is the message there, right? It's, um, it's gotta be way more, I think from everything that I've heard and I haven't put out a product, uh, that, you know, is of the likes of insomnia or anything, but from everything I've heard, it's get, you've gotta be in it. You've gotta have some skin in the game as it were. Right. Um, it's right. important that you're, you're in the thick of it somehow. Um, and, and I think, um, maybe a way to summarize that is a lot of things can be thought of as like a sliding scale. So I think in terms of using it, like at one end you have, you're the core user, you build it for yourself. And at the other end is like consulting, you're building specifically for a mm -hmm. customer. And I think when you have a scale like that, it's usually good to either be on one end or the other end. Um, so you're either building it for yourself first as a tool that you use, or you're like extremely, like working extremely close with the customer in order to build something they want. Right. Um, so it, I think it can work in the middle, but it's, maybe a little bit more of a gray area yep. and a little bit more unknown in there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's super key. Um, so you're, this acquisition has gone through. Are you, so are you, what's part of the deal? Are you working at Kong now? Um, are you full-time employed there? How does that look now? Yeah, so I'm full-time employee with uh, the, con the acquisition contract is for two years. So okay. I have to remain there for at least two years uh, to get the full the full acquisition benefit. Um, but so I didn't talk about this yet, but one of the other reasons why I thought Kong was a good fit was because I am basically doing what I was doing already hmm. when I wasn't at Kong. So like Insomnia is still a project, it's still open source, um, but now we'll be able to dedicate more resources to it because um, Kong has, like it's a fairly large company, they have about 160 employees. Um, so we can dedicate a few more people onto the project and also build some other cool things that are related to insomnia. Mm -hmm. So we've already started on one um, 
which is built on top of Insomnia, which hopefully you'll be able to see see more about it soon. Cool. Um, but yeah, that was yeah. So I'm essentially doing the same thing I was, except I'm around people again. Like I have a team, still working on the same things though. So it's it's. I feel like it's a pretty ideal situation. Absolutely, that sounds really cool. Um, are the wheels already spinning in your head about what the future looks like after that? Like, do you think you'll do another solo product venture, uh, sort of like Insomnia, or what, what's your thought on that? Uh, I definitely want to get back into, like, I don't know if I want to do a solo thing or like a more classical startup, um, but I do want to get back into that eventually. I think I'm going to need some time to like rest a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think that's definitely in my future. I love building products and I love being um, involved in like many different aspects of building a product. So I think we mentioned co-founders a little while ago. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to try it as a solo, solo founder was to sort of prove to myself that I could do everything. Like I could build a product, I could do the design, I could write mm -hmm. blog posts, I could talk to customers, I could set up a co corporation, like all of these things. And now that I've sort of proven that to myself, I think that's like, I've accomplished that goal. I have that confidence now to sort of go to the next step for the next thing maybe. Right. Cool. Yeah. Keeping the challenges coming for yourself. I like it. That's great. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I think that's probably a good uh, point to start wrapping up on. Is there anything that we can check out um, to kind of track your journey further? Anything you'd uh, point uh, listeners to in terms of resources for that? Um, I would check out my website, shire.co. Okay. Um, there's a bunch of links and stuff on there. Um, and also, I think there's a link to the Transparency blog post series of Insomnia. Uh, on that page okay but i do want to part of the my goal for the next coming years is to start doing more things publicly again so more writing um maybe launch a few more tiny little projects um but now that insomnia is sort of a little bit more out of my hands i want to uh, i guess i have an urge to contribute in other ways to back to my like my projects and my identity very cool. Love it. So we'll we'll uh, keep an eye out for other stuff coming. Absolutely. We'll uh, link up uh, those spots, Shire.co, and also the Transparency blog post series. We'll link that up in the show notes. Uh, tell us where we can find you on Twitter. Is it, uh, what was it, Greg? Greg Gregory Shire on Gregory Twitter. Shire on Twitter. We'll put that in the, the notes as well. Um, Cool, man. Well, this has been a blast. I, I really enjoyed uh, getting to know you and getting to know your story. So uh, once again, congratulations on the acquisition. That's, uh, that's exciting. I, I hope for many more great things like that uh, in your future. And again, if you're ever around Ottawa, as we talked about before we started rolling, let me know. Love to take you out. Awesome. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and thanks for having me. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you once again so much for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. You'll be able to find show notes, including links to all the resources that Greg mentioned at ecpodcast.io. If you've got any feedback about the show, if you'd like to suggest a future guest, or if you just want to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. You can say hi on Twitter at twitter.com slash coderpodcast. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, and if you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave a review and subscribe. But if not, no hard feelings. 
Until next time, happy hacking. Thank you.